0: How's everyone doing this evening? My name is Christian Wagner, and this is Militant Thomist. So, how are you doing, Eric? It's great to have you on. Oh, I'm doing good. I'm doing even better after seeing that intro. That was great. Oh yeah, I'm a I'm a bit of a uh, Anglophile. Obviously. Yeah, so I'm am in the I. Yeah. So I just chucked up as many English saints and martyrs as I could, and then put a wonderful ordinariate chant of the <laughs> of the um, Lord have mercy on there. Hmm so today we're going to be talking a bit about your recent book but before that do you want to i'm sure everybody knows who you are but do you want to give a brief uh personal intro and do why you're interested on this subject yeah sure so um
1: my you know my name's eric ivara uh i'm a blogger uh i've i've uh appeared on a number of youtube channels and um I'm just very interested in dialoguing and debating on the Catholic faith and uh, some of the <clears throat> some of the alternative expressions uh, that are Christian and claim to compete. Um, and uh, you could see me, you could you could see all my material on my website Uh I show up on Reason and Theology, the YouTube channel, quite a bit. Um, but if you just YouTube my name, you'll find other, uh, other presentations I've given. Um, I'm interested in this because uh, this is actually first in order for me, because when I made the switch from Protestantism to Catholicism, it really had to do with the fact that I saw the Bible teaching uh, the doctrine of Eucharistic transubstantiation and the sacrifice of the mass precisely in the way that the Catholic Church teaches it, I saw it as a biblical doctrine. And I knew that if I was going to be a biblical Christian, I'd have to park my feet somewhere in the boundary of confession that can absorb that teaching. And, of course, you know, that led me to uh, consider, obviously, East-West. I eventually, you know, everyone knows I became a Catholic, but uh, this book is actually... The first thing that that really uh, pa- you know mirrors my journey, even before I started getting into the whole issue of the papacy, and the Orthodox and the filioque, and Vatican II, and all those other things. This is actually it, it's actually fitting that something like this gets published first, because
0: it's 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 runs parallel with the order of my own journey. Do you want to? So what what is this this book that you're you're talking about?
1: Yeah I have it with me here so I'll put I'll put it up I'm, I'm pretty sure that uh, I'm not exactly sure how the viewers are going to see it but um, hopefully you see it uh, right side left to right. this is uh, the title is called Melchizedek and the Last Supper. Uh, at the bottom there I see uh, subtitle is uh, Biblical and patristic Evidence for the Sacrifice of the Mass. And the uh, front cover, um, if people can see that, that's actually a 6th century mosaic uh, from the church San Vitale in Ravenna, Italy. So this is all the way in the west in the Italian peninsula. And that's uh, uh, a mosaic of Melchizedek. Um, And it doesn't take too much to decipher what he's doing there. That's actually a crop on the far uh, left of there you will it, you'll see the lamb that's actually uh, 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 can, that's actually cut off from Abel. Abel is actually holding the lamb. Um, and this kind of this kind of goes with the uh, the traditional Roman canon, which recites the petition to God to offer or to accept the offerings of uh, the um, transubstantiated bread and wine. Just like uh, he had received and accepted the offerings of Abraham, the uh, Abel the righteous, Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac, and uh, or his willingness at least, and um, Melchizedek's uh, sa- Melchizedek's sacrifice, which is Saint Leo the Great actually added into the Eucharistic prayer in the fifth century, uh, the Holy Victim, the Immaculate Victim, um, Hostia. Which you know, some people prefer to translate it "sacrifice" instead of instead of "victim," um, but uh, yeah. So that's that's the title of the book, and the book is all about basically showing that the Melchizedekian typology in the Old Testament, um, which really, in a nutshell, is simply is simply there uh, for the purpose of showing that the Old Testament already had and within it the expiration of the Sinai program or the, the ironic Levitical program of a priesthood. So according to new Testament revelation, the, if you read the old Testament correctly, then you'll see in a some semi cryptic fashion that the Melchizedekian story, which is minuscule, <laughs> it's tiny, um, Actually spells out the expiration of the mosaic law, and uh, so that comes with a lot of different things. You know, when I was a Protestant, um, even as one who loved typology, I was big into. Um, I was big into uh, G.K. Beals. Big into this. Uh, that the it was around 2000, 2007 that I saw a lot of guys just getting into this stuff, and uh, of course, I was just reading Protestant literature, but when it came to Melchizedek, even the Protestants only wanted to maintain that the only kind of parallelism that exists between Melchizedek and Christ is the fact that there that they're both in the paradigm they're both unoriginate and everlasting mm-hmm.
0: you
1: know and um if you like if you pick up the new testament commentary or the the use of the old testament and new testament by is edited by Carson and Beale and you go through those texts on where melchizedek shows up and it seems like There's a clear desire to explicate what the author to the Hebrews wants to say, who doesn't bring up anything about the issue of Melchizedek's bread and wine. Um, And so there's a hesitation to even venture into that kind of parallelism. But if you follow the argument uh, closely enough, the, the priesthood of Melchizedek, has a certain style to it. This is why Christ is Christ is heralded as in the Old Testament as priest in the order of Melchizedek, and that word "order" there just simply means like the style or the shape and form of Melchizedek. It doesn't mean like um, the Dominican or the Benedictine order. Um, it just means that Christ's priesthood comes in the fashion. Of Melchizedek, or the style of Melchizedek. Most English translations say "order" of Melchizedek, and um, if you, it, it, I believe that the 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 uh, the priesthood that Christ brought is obviously the priesthood of the New Covenant, the fulfillment of all of God's covenantal plan, and it's not explicit. It does, you know, you have to connect the dots. But Christ acting with bread and wine at the Last Supper, which is you know goes right in with the title of the book, Melchizedek and the Last Supper, he is the priest, the Melchizedekian priest who grabs bread and wine and offers it to God. But in this time, in this case, he merges it with his with his with himself, his body and blood, the the substance of his human sacrifice, you know. Um, that parallelism is just so strong that at the very least you have to consider it, you know? And I think that if you add on the patristic commentaries that the early church understood all the way going, going all the way back to uh, St. Clement of Alexandria um, of the school of Alexandria, Egypt, um, you see a quite consistent, uh, You see, the theology of this typology in the Fathers all the way through the first millennium is that the bread and wine certainly prefigured what Christ did at the Last Supper. And so the question is, okay, if there's a parallelism between Melchizedek's offering of bread and wine, which again, that already assumes that Melchizedek is offering bread and wine, because the Old Testament text actually doesn't indicate that, um, any, in any clear way, um, the only thing that's the only thing that you could derive there is that it, it Moses says he's a high priest, and then Abraham, which at this time he's Abram, uh, offers him a tenth of all of his possessions, which is it, it's an action towards uh, it's an action towards a superior or a superior representative of God. Um, which the author to the Hebrews takes that like that action shows that the Melchizedekian high priesthood is, it has to be superior to the Levitical priesthood because the Levitical priesthood is enclosed within Abraham. So whatever Abraham did, you can kind of say the the Levites did and perpetuum being, meaning the whole Levitical order pays tithes to the Melchizedekian order high priesthood. Uh, so you can't really derive anything with the bread and wine you know just based off the text um but you know christ, christ the messiah is said to come in in this in the style of this priest you know what kind of priest doesn't have a sacrifice to give you know if if we say that melchizedek was just offering animals just like anybody um that would that would it would be kind of odd you know i mean it's possible to say so but it would be kind of odd to say that the the style of Christ's priesthood is still matching an animal sacrificial priesthood and that just seems odd it seems far more preferable that if Christ in his new covenant action in Mirror, mirroring Moses, when Moses sprinkled the blood in Exodus, uh, I think it's Exodus 24, on the people, ratifying, ratifying the oath, ratifying the covenant of of Moses of Sinai. Christ is doing this at the at the Last Supper with bread and wine as a Melchizedekian priest. I think there's just uh, there's a tsunami force in the direction. Of the Melchizedekian bread and wine being a type or a tipos of what Christ did. But I do recognize that it doesn't explicitly say so. And so there is a wedge room for somebody to crank objections to it. I don't want to take that away from people. But I just see this, I see the tsunami force pointing in that direction. And I just let
0: myself get caught in the wave. <laughs> yeah. So, if um, for those that are wondering, you you did mention uh, earlier and then just now that there were some Protestant uh, dislike for this sort of connection in modern authors, but interestingly enough, uh, back uh, this was probably maybe nine months ago when. I first decided that I needed to sit down and study Eucharistic sacrifice a little bit more. And I was reading Cardinal Bellarmine and then some of the Reformed Scholastics that I always read. I realized that there is this very um, this very big distaste for this uh, type of typology, this uh, drawing, this connection between the Eucharist and the uh and the and um the melchizedekian uh offering of of bread and wine and i found that to be very interesting because before that moment i actually surprisingly had not recognized this fact and it wasn't until then that i that i did and that just seemed extremely odd to me because it was very intuitive in reading the uh the text in genesis 14 that this is and uh, having gone over it and ran into it in the fathers occasionally, that this was just an obvious fact, that this was part of the uh, what it meant for Christ to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek, and it was it, it was a rude awakening for me that um, that Reformed Catholicism was a lot less Catholic than I thought it was.
1: Yes, you know i i I, uh, I won't. I won't name the parish I went to, but I did go to an Anglican uh, parish here in central Florida. And uh, the rector was just adamant that the doctrine of transubstantiation is true. The articles are wrong. (laughs) Um, But, you know, um, he really couldn't pencil that in too far from himself. You know, we had people there that, thought genuflecting was idolatry um people were still (laughs) people were still able to hold presbyterian views of uh of the mass it was kind of you know so you had people there were that were high church in their own subjective conscience anglo-catholic you know definitely in line with uh you know trying to hold uphold that the high church you know george carlton you know kind of anglican high church catholic anglo-catholicism um and i loved it i mean i have a whole library you know um i, I used to thought i used to think that and I, I to to a certain extent i still have such a reference um for anglo-catholic literature they come so close you know it's like they they know they know that it's it it, it matches the catholic faith you know in the in the the cultic way, the Roman Catholic Church, but uh, they just don't want to go. You know, they they want to park themselves just millimeters away, <laughs> just to just to claim more continuity. You know, Rome kind of stretched mm-hmm. the boundary just a little bit too much, but um, and that's kind of how what I held. You know, I I held Rome stretched the boundary just a little bit too much, and. Uh, um, but yeah, this 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 issue of Melchizedek Christ and and Paul's exposition of the Mass, you know, or the supper, you know. Um, it really I, I really respected the rigor, the intellectual rigor. That some of the reformed scholastics and some of the England English divines were they were trying so hard to be faithful to what the fathers were saying and not to go any further and it and it, and it's very compelling when you read it it's like, yeah, Rome's going a little too much over this like that's not in there're going a little bit too much too far but the fathers are just too clear on this and mm-hmm. I meditated more and more, and, and this kind of did it for me, so I
0: couldn't be Anglican anymore. So when when you're talking about Eucharistic sacrifice, that, that big word and that watchword that we kind of like to throw out, what do you what exactly do you mean by that? Because you have you have multiple schools within Rome, a Scotist view versus uh, even, even within Thomism, there's different schools. And then also you'll have Lutherans. We'll talk about Eucharistic sacrifice in a certain way. Anglicans will, uh, the Reformed will. It even makes it into the liturgy, the Book of Common Prayer, talking about a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving and sacrificing yeah. ourselves. So what do you mean by a sacrifice? How, how are you stating it differently? Than some of these Protestant divines might be, might be yeah, about it. yeah. So i uh, I am not equipped
1: to field uh, into the preference of Thomism over Scotism, although if I had the preparation, like I, I would. But um, I'm taking the position of the Council of Trent, which says that uh, the sacrifice of the altar and the sacrifice of the human Christ on the wood of the cross are one and the same. Um, and the only thing that distinguishes the two is one was done in a bloody manner and the other was done in an unbloody manner. And that's a very big distinction though. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and a lot of people often overlook that because they still kind of want to, I've seen people say things like, um, that what happens on the altar is kind of like just like we rewind ourselves back to the to the <laughs> to, to Golgotha and and like somehow invisibly Christ is dying again. Um I've heard I've seen and heard people that they have this idea that Catholics in an in an invisible way under signs um take you know the the living Jesus with a pumping heart and breathing lungs and oxygenated blood and bring him through a transition of death again, you know, Mm -hmm. where he's, he's, he's a living human being back to a corpse. And like this somehow gets done under the signs of bread and wine. That's not what the Catholic church is trying to teach. Although many fathers make it sound that way. Um, if you balance them out with their other statements, whenever they had to answer them for themselves, I think it's pretty clear that this is a this is one of the reasons why the fathers use language like symbol and mysticum mystic mystici corpus a mystical body, and that it's a symbol on you know it's a sign and symbol, um, and a spiritual death, spiritual sacrifice. It's important because. While they understand it is one in the same sacrifice as Calvary, they also know that what's happening on the altar is Jesus is not dying again, okay? the The human body of Jesus that became a corpse in the tomb or on the cross and then on the tomb and then was brought back to glorified life, that body has been intact perfectly at the right hand of God, you know? What miraculously is going on, you know, and I just take the, you know, the standard Tridentine view, what's, what is Christ created a miracle with food, you know, bread and he took bread and wine. And just with this symbolic separation of the two, you know, bread and, and, and wine, um, he can mystic mystically repeat what he did on the cross in an unbloody manner. Um, but it's the oblation it's not a natural human dying again you know? mm-hmm. and that's important because protestants often did think you know they they knew rome didn't want to say that there's a second and third and exponential death of christ but they just they saw that they saw the they saw the stratagem of transubstantiation as leading towards that view, um, and I think the unbloody definition that, tr- that Trent gave is clear. So, to answer your question, Calvary and the Mass is one in the same sacrifice. It's propitiatory in the sense that, just like the just like the cross appeased the wrath of God and won for for mankind the the benefits of redemption and salvation. The Mass is the very same offering, the very same upward, the very same upward oblation that Christ gave to the Father on the cross. That very same oblation is there by Christ, through Christ, and performed by him Um, through the priest, but also the people through the priest. So we all get joined into this oblation. This is one of those things that the fathers talk about, you know, you don't really hear a lot of Catholics today talk about this anymore, but the fathers definitely talk about how the whole mystical body, not just the mystical sacrifice, but the mystical body, meaning we are joined in the offering and offer up ourselves through Christ to the father. Um, So I, and and that's something that usually high church Anglicans don't have a problem with. Um, so I, I, that's the kind of view I take. I take it's, it's, it's definitely the real, mystically repeated sacrifice of Jesus. Mystically repeated. That's, that could be confusing. Um, so, some popes use that language. doesn't mean a repetitious death, meaning like the natural death of Jesus again and again. It's a mystical death, meaning he, he's able to reproduce the one sacrifice in a mystical manner. Uh, on the cross, in a mysterious manner, on the cross. So, it, it, to the degree that anybody s- begins to try and diverge, what happens on on the altar and what happened on Calvary, to that degree, they are straying from
0: the truth. Okay, that makes that makes sense. So, do you do you want to get into a little bit about how exactly um, we get this? a Melchizedekian uh, Eucharistic typology from scripture, because we basically got Genesis 14, a few yep. mentions in the Psalm, and then you get this Melchizedekian priesthood in Hebrews, but the one in Hebrews doesn't really mention the Eucharist. So so are Catholics just um, being weird when it comes to the way in which they read scripture? What are, what are even some... um hermeneutical presuppositions we have about how we read scripture, like where, where are we getting all this from? It seems like you're stuffing a whole, uh, a whole, uh, systematic theology into a single verse where it doesn't belong.
1: Yeah. I, I, and I, I know the feeling coming on the other side because, um, people don't know this, but you know, I, I was a reformed Baptist for yeah, Reform Baptist for so many years, um, but before that, the pastor that really influenced me, like that, I that I had a radical conversion experience under. He was a dispensationalist. Um, so I, I've come from quite the you know I I came from having a one of these very Americanized Dallas Theological Seminary normal literal grammatical method of interpretation. Typology was looked at with strong suspicion unless the scripture details it. But as soon as the scripture is done detailing it, we go right back to the assumption that there can't be any kind of typological speculations. Um, But I went from there to being a Protestant who was open to typology. This is mainly due to uh, what reading is one of the most impactful books in my life. It's, It's called... Grasping God's Word by Scott Duvall. Uh, There was a co-author, too. I can't remember his name. But these guys took you through the classical method of Christian and biblical interpretation, showing, you know, what, what senses, the senses of Scripture and the role of typology. And that just opened me up. You know, I, I began to believe there was a second Eve typology. I mean, I would never get to the point of saying that there's a second Eve typology. I had no problem with there being a uh, an Adamic t- typology because Paul says that, Paul says there's a, a, a you know an anti-type um, for Adam, but to say that there's an anti-type for Eve, that that that's it's taking biblical logic. But it is inferring something that may not be ex- as explicit. Now that one's you know that one's not as good as an example because you you, you had really good reform thinkers that were able to pull in things like the marriage analogy, uh, Ephesians five. You know there were some there were some scriptural things that made it a uh, second Eve typology reasonable, but a Malchizedekian typology that's. Emphatic, that's explicit. But now we're talking about what's the full nature of that typology. And now we're going beyond what the scripture explicitly says. In fact, the author to the Hebrews goes beyond what Moses says, right? Because the author to the Hebrews in- infers that Melchizedek has no beginning or end of days. But there's no explicit statement that Moses makes. Uh, that he has no beginning or or end of days. And so what you have to kind of do is you kind of have to like sit back and say, well, you know, there's these genealogies and then, you know, Melchizedek comes in and there is no inheritance. There is no um, biographical origin. There is no progeny. Um, I think there's a couple of other figures that fall within that category in Genesis too, So it's like, The author to the Hebrews almost seems like he's going beyond what the scripture says. Of course he isn't, um, but um, it could appear that way. And so I, I, I would say that the author to the Hebrews, which I take as St. Paul, forgive me. I'm just going to say St. Paul from here on out. Um, St. St. Paul gets a whole theology about the eternality of Melchizedek from Psalm 110 and Genesis 14 when it's not even said about Melchizedek can I that th- that means that what is said about Melchizedek has to have importance it has to have mm-hmm. some relationship to to this melchizedekian prophecy or the you know the the priesthood that the the messiah the davidic monarch is supposed to have so the author to the hebrews doesn't mention it so why is that you know that that's probably a good question to field. um actually i even got a phone call from a really prestigious scholar and he got my book and he he was like he just he's like eric the author to the hebrews doesn't mention it if, if it would be the perfect time to mention this, <laughs> um, why didn't he mention it? And the the position I take is that if you read Saint Paul in Hebrews, he he himself is very he admits that he's being tangential with the issue of Melchizedek. I mean, he wants to go beyond the the elementary principles of the faith. You know, I think he says baptisms, the laying on of hands um judgment, resurrection and the final things um but or faith and repentance but then he you know he wants to get into this issue of Melchizedek because for him that's like the, the, the Jews can't go back to the Old Testament because Melchizedek marks the expiration of the Old Covenant. So you can't go back to something, that in and of itself foresaw the wrap up of the of the old covenant. So his purpose was limited. It really wasn't towards exactly how Melchizedek in the you know why why Melchizedek's bread and wine event has anything to do with Christ's bread and wine event. That does seem a little bit outside the purview because the only thing that the author to the Hebrews or St. Paul is trying to say there is that, look, the Old Testament already gives these hints that it's going to be over with and that it, the door is going to be open for this new priesthood. And uh, with the with a change in the priest and the priesthood, there has to be a change of the whole law. I think that that, that pretty much is the extent of his purpose there. And he himself even says he he, you know, is not going to go into every detail. So um, that would be my answer. Although I do think it's a very perceptive question. Anybody who has it um, is certainly, you know, they're doing the right thing by asking that question. Uh, But I don't think that it's an overhaul to the project that I'm doing.
0: Yes, so I actually have a have a thought on this too if you don't mind me no, uh, yeah, mind me pontificating as the interviewer so I think this also gets us into um, a, a bit deeper into how we do typology and what exactly is the Catholic um hermeneutic and I'm using Catholic in a broad sense of reading scripture because when you have a um when you have the allegorical sense, so to speak, or the spiritual sense being used in Scripture, you have what's called the signa or the sign, which would be Melchizedek, and then you have the re significata, the thing signified, which would be Christ. So Melchizedek, in in sacred Scripture, in in it is a God appointed sign to which um, to which Christ is the thing in which. He signifies. So when you look at Melchizedek, your mind is elevated to Christ. And now in what aspect is he a signa of Christ? He's a signa of Christ insofar as he is a priest. And what does a priest do? A priest sacrifices. So in these various aspects, in which in the biblical narrative, Melchizedek is presented as a priest. Your mind is supposed to go to the re significata, the thing signified. So, in his offering of bread and wine, your mind ascends to Christ. And I don't get how else you could, your mind could ascend to Christ in this aspect. So, either you're going to have to abandon typology, which a lot of the listeners do not want to do you're going to have to redefine typology, which good luck, or you're going to have to find some way in which Melchizedek, uh, in which Melchizedek is pointing to Christ in this aspect. That's not the Eucharist. Yeah, I, I, I like it. <laughs> it makes perfect sense. So do you want to, um, illumine us a bit about the, um, maybe the, if there is a bit of a development when it comes to how the fathers are perceiving this, um, this connection between Melchizedek and Christ, or whether it's, um, almost the same thing going through, through the first, I think you go nine centuries. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So, you know, finding literature where the, the fathers speak about this, um, plainly or directly let you know let you know set aside just tangentially referring to it it's extremely hard to find it, and it at least translated in English you know I had to do a lot of digging um, to get the amount of uh, literature that I that I got I spent hours and hours looking for more and more literature And, um, this is the extent of what I got. In fact, I, I found one other thing that I didn't bring up in the book after I wrote the book. And that was the fact that, uh, most scholars believe St. Leo the Great, um, you know, added the, added the Latin phrase at the end of the, um, that part of the Roman canon where, where the petition to receive the offerings of, of the bread and wine consecrated, um, just like Abel, Abraham, and Melchizedek, I, I didn't know about that when I wrote the book. I found out afterwards because um, I had a little bit of a, a sort of a, a a moment of questioning on whether I did the right thing because when you when you see the Roman Canon mention that, it almost sounds like the holy victim the immaculate victim of jesus is what melchizedek offered but after looking at several commentaries on the roman canon it seems pretty unanimous that scholars and theologians uh and you know within rome uh, canonical liturgical scholars have have borne witness to the fact that melchizedek didn't offer christ you know in the same way that Christ offered himself and that the bread and wine offering is typological. So it's, it's got to be inferior, however much matching in other features. Um, but some of the fathers do seem to think that uh, Melchizedek offered the, the Christ. And, you know, I, I, <sighs> I I kind of wanted to go that route, but even in the book, I had to hesitate because yep. I don't I don't know uh, don't
0: know if that's really the case. And obviously, the church hasn't been clear. Mm-hmm. And Saint who, Robert Bellarmine actually goes in this direction in his treatise on the Eucharistic sacrifice. Right. Yeah, and that was after I had my manuscript done and everything. Um,
1: but uh, yeah, there are some people who you know go in that direction, and I think it's a beautiful one. Um, I'd like to meditate on, on that more. Um, but I, I I wanted to keep myself just to what was like over, you know, the abundantly clear things that mm-hmm. the fathers had to say. You know, and I start with, uh, I, I make note of what John Calvin says about the fathers and uh, the chapter Ancient and Patristic Interpretations. Uh, Calvin actually uh, admits, you know, to his credit, he admits that the fathers, uh, draw this parallel between the Eucharist and Melchizedek's bread wine. Uh, he thinks that they do it ignorantly. I think ignorantly, and <laughs> um, you know that they that they did so. Um, you know, the, he calls it the fictions of the ancients are abundantly refuted by the author to the Hebrews. Um, Utterly ridiculous are the papists who distort the offering of bread and wine to the sacrifice of their mass. That's what he says in the quotes there. Um, but Calvin at least admits that the fathers saw this connection. He was rejecting the papal monstrosity of what he thought was a heresy. Uh, but at least he admitted that the fathers saw that connection, even though he may have said the fathers didn't connect the dots as excruciatingly as the Papists did, he still th- he still believed that they they made that connection. Um, interestingly enough, Jonathan Edwards had no problem with the connection, pure and pure. <laughs> mm-hmm. That you know, which was interesting, and I think I I think you can be a Reformed Presbyterian or Anglican, um, and I'm I wouldn't be surprised if some of the more typologically leaning reformed uh, exegetes today are you know happy to admit that the bread and wine of melchizedek points to the eucharist um but they could still sort of shelve it to like a different sacrifice like where and this is this is where you get into those absurdities of where it's like Christ offered bread and wine as part of his priesthood but then he he had a a numerically different sacrifice of himself you know but i think that's absurd you know um, mm-hmm. but um, you don't have to be a catholic to see the connection you know yes but but uh, when the fathers make the connection i do think they they point in the direction of the, of the catholic church and i do that not just by citing where they make a connection with melchizedek and christ's Last Supper event, but also by the fact of what they say about the Last Supper. You know, obviously I begin with St. Clement of Alexandria. Um, you, you're, you're trying to get blood from a rock if you're trying to get trans- the full-blown clear transubstantiation from him. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can still give it a generous consideration, and that's why I included it in the book, not as like a, you know, a serious knock them down proof, but as a as a generous consideration, it, it it certainly does look like he called the Eucharist an oblation, a sacrifice. Um, what kind of sacrifice? The only similitude that he gives it is the body of Christ. No matter what he calls it, spiritual or not, it's still the body and blood of Christ in some way. Um, and and so he he I think if you take the fact that he admits it's an oblation, he admits it's the flesh and blood of Christ in some way, and that Melchizedek's offering of bread and wine was a prefiguring of it, I think you have enough dots there in the air um, to, to to draw the connections out. But again, you know, if somebody wants to lodge objections on this, I do understand on, you know, some of these fathers, the whole construction is not put into display you kind of have to like take them all together cumulatively. And then even then it's just, I think it's just a tsunami, but that it doesn't come crashing down just yet. But I think you can kind of see the, 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 uh, the, the evidence mounting in this direction. Um, I think Augustine was like, I think I quoted from him the most, you know, and, I didn't even have to comment on what he said much, <laughs> because um, he makes it very clear that you know the sacrifice is obviously Christ's offering himself. He carried himself in his own hands, Augustine says. You know, yes, I know the alternative readings to that, but I think I, I, I think I think the, the the mounted evidence is definitely in the direction of transubstantiation. Um, and I don't think you can take a spiritualist sacrifice in Augustine and uphold what he says about Melchizedek. That I mean, Augustine says that what Christians do at the altar is what Melchizedek does uh, in Genesis 14. I mean, that's an enormous connection that he asserts, almost flippantly in certain places. You have to you have to go in there and do the um, the hard work of drawing out the connection, you know, from Melchizedek to the Christian altar. Melchizedek, Christian altar. That's a huge distance. And the only thing I can see that bridges the two is the Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation. And I think Augustine gives that. Mm-hmm. His, uh, it's not... It's not as plain and indisputable as some Catholics want it to be. I would yes. like it to be more. I would like it to be more indisputable. Um, but again, I think it's tilting matter. It's a tilting. You know, it it it's going in that direction. Um, and so, you know, the Syriac fathers like Saint Ephraim. Um, you know, he comes out and even uses the word symbol in one place that the bread and wine are symbols. Of Christ's body and blood, but then if you read another book of his, he says what he means by symbol is that he, it, it's nothing other than what Christ is in his incarnated
0: flesh and blood. Mm-hmm. So you know that you got to take that yeah. into consideration. There's a lot of symbol language uh, from some of the earliest fathers. Uh, I, I've seen it in uh, Tertullian and Clement. A lot of the early Latin fathers. And Darwell Stone has a wonderful oh yeah uh, in his Magisterial History of Eucharistic Doctrine. There's a wonderful section explaining how the fathers use that term "sign" or "symbol."
1: Yeah, uh,
0: that's. In fact, if I could recommend a
1: book to anybody, I think it would be that one. If depending on where they're at, you know, um, if you want a, a a historical theology on the Eucharist um, in the Fathers, I definitely think that's like right up. To, I mean, unless unless you're just brand new and you still want to read like. You know, no offense to him, I think he's great. But if you want to read like Mike Aquilina on the on the fathers, you know, if you're there, don't jump into Darwell Stone. But um, if you've studied this quite a bit and you really need to read that, um, if without reading that, you really can't begin to speak on the matter. I don't think with
0: any kind of decisive force. You know, I put um, the link in the comments for everybody who is who wants to read that. That's yeah. truly one of the one of the best. So do you want to transition a little bit into some, some QA? We got some good questions piling up for us.
1: Yeah, no, you know, I, I think that it's it's a very short book, you know, it's only 112 pages in total. Um, and uh I think that it's an easy read. I think sometimes you know you might have to stop and meditate, but uh, anybody who gets the book, I think it'll be easy enough for them
0: to at least consider what I'm saying um definitely we'll be using that as a reference book in the future yeah it's a great compendium okay so Giga Sniper, love the name again he asks what does it mean that christ is quote offered up end quote in the mass
1: yeah so um you know this is this can be very complex um i i have a the second chapter actually the first chapter i believe just after my introduction is actually entitled The Catholic View of the Mass or The Catholic Teaching on the Eucharist. Um, And so I I go into what the Council of Trent taught. I go into what, you know, papal interpretations of what Trent means by the sacrifice of Jesus in an unbloody manner. But, uh, you know, what it means uh, that Christ is offered up in the Mass is simply that it's a sacrificial act. So there's a certain action that happens um, at the Last Supper, with with the interchange between Christ and the bread and wine, uh, the elements of bread and wine, where he he actually brings to the table, you know, the offering up of his humanity as a violent sacrifice to the Father, the ending of his life, you know, the the charity that he has for the Father, and this is you know some of the things that um, sometimes people inquiring into Catholicism, they they think that what Jesus does on the cross is primarily, sometimes only exclusively, the love of Jesus for human beings. And what we have to understand, and I, I'm not sure if I could say primarily, I, I think primus would be a pro- appropriate word, primarily the, Christ is loving the Father He's loving. He's giving to God everything that God can give through humanity to His Father, and in in that process, He's loving humanity because He does it in behalf of the of the human race. But that love that is expressed in the violent ending of His life—that's the offering of Jesus. You know, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Well, without charity, there is no sacrifice. So if somebody, you know, if, if they, in John chapter 6, if, if a bunch of people started taking out f- forks and knives and spoons and started spooning into Jesus and eating him, um, that would not have been sanctifying because it, it doesn't conform to, um, didn't, it doesn't conform to the the right, the ritual of sacrifice. Um, so, Christ can only be eaten in that way, in the context of Him offering Himself as a sacrifice, like the Paschal Lamb, um, the Yom Kippur Lamb, the, you know, and and uh, fulfilling the the Passover and the Day of Atonement. But it's very simple. The offering of Jesus means it's it's that love He had for the Father that was expressed in the violent sacrifice of His of His human body. For, for and out of love for us as well, um, that comes to the altar in a mis, in a he Christ reap the reason why Christ produced it through a bread and wine meal is because he knew that the Christian Church would continue the bread and wine meal, and so he gave the Church the power to reproduce that offering
0: unendingly, you know, until he comes again okay so next holy smokes asks what does eric think of protestants beating catholics over the head with that christ sacrifices once for all how do the father square sacrifice the mass with what hebrews says so that's a good
1: question and uh that's dustin quick by the way he's a rock star and the uh, I'm having him on tomorrow actually. Yeah, he's a temple feel, theolo- you know, a largely forgotten aspect of Christian theology, canonical theology on the temple, but in and I'd hate to ignore and not mention that about him. But um so Protestants beat us on the head, you know, with this um you know, sometimes Catholics don't do justice though. They kind of say like, well, it's just a it's just a representation of his death. But that still doesn't do justice because you can represent the human natural death um, in, in the world of miracles. And so we're still not saying that Christ dies a natural death in the Eucharistic sacrifice. Um, so, but I take Chrysostom's view. If in my book, I quote from him, his commentary in Hebrews, his commentary, I think, in Corinthians, where there's only one sacrifice of Jesus. Christ only died once. If we can make this, I can't make it any more vividly clear that Christ's body was violently ended. He became a corpse and the Holy Spirit vivified that corpse in the tomb and brought it out to a supernaturally transformed, glorified body. That transition has only been once in the in the career life of Jesus. It never happened again. You know? um, so... Catholics are certainly not wanting to deny that. So the the Eucharistic offering is a mystical, mysterious reproduction um, of that oblation without any natural human death in the process, again.
0: Okay, so Tato GL asks... Have any of you read the recent joint declarate document of the Pontifical Council for Promoting Christian Unity and the Lutheran and uh, International Lutheran Council on the Eucharistic Sacrifice? Have you read that? I have not. So I, I
1: glanced at it, actually. I'm sad to say um, I glanced at it because um, I had a friend of mine who he was actually Orthodox at the time. uh and he he was looking into Lutheranism, and he's like, you know, Lutheranism and Orthodoxy are, are are saying the same thing about the Eucharist. And he's saying, look, even Rome is saying the same thing as the Lutherans. And he and he brought me to this doc to this document, and um, I have not read the document, so I can't quote on it. I've only glanced at it, um, but I can't imagine. I mean, if a Lutheran wants to agree with Trent and the the most ecumenical teachings on the Eucharist that you could make my day or year or life any better you know if you did that but you know in my book I quote from John Paul II I quote from you know authoritative statements all the way up to the modern era that I think make it clear that it's we are talking about two different things two different realities. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, that's all
0: I can say uh, without being an expert, without being a scholar. Yes, def, definitely um, there would not have been entire Lutheran responses to the Council of Trent if it was just a <laughs> little right. misunderstanding and then entire Catholic responses to those Lutheran responses on the Council of Trent. Right, right. Okay, so what is the difference between a Lutheran and Catholic view of sacrifice? Mm. Well, I am not... Um,
1: I am not uh ripe to describe exactly what the Lutherans teach right now. I have recollections from my time trying to be a Lutheran, um, but it is my understanding that they 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 reject that the Eucharistic sacrifice is one and undivided and equal and you know, consonant. With this, with the cross of Christ, as if, as if what is happening is a reproduction of that offering, you know, I don't think that they could allow that, you know, I think they can go far with the language, they can go, you know, far and wide with talking about how real the sacrificial death of Christ becomes present, in a in a sense, but not as if, if it's not a fresh, um mystical reproductions just not fresh. It's for them, Christ died once, and there is no there is no way to reproduce it even in an unbloody manner um, through yes. priests. You know, and I I think that's really the that's that's the demarcation with Catholicism. Mm-hmm. Now the question kind of wants me to give a positive on Lutheran teaching. I just right now I just don't feel comfortable doing that.
0: Yeah, uh, if you look into Cardinal means on the sacrifice of the Mass, he actually has an entire chapter, with wherein he compares various definitions of sacrifice and the huge difference between the reform generally and then the Roman view. And this will be continually affirmed uh, through the reform tradition, where the reform were like, yeah, this is kind of where where we disagree, is in the propriety of the sacrifice, whether it's a proper or an improper sacrifice, because the the, the what is, is uh, agree I mean, the that is, is agreed upon everybody, but what's disagreed upon is the what is. Right. Because you all agree that it's a sacrifice, but we're disagreeing on what do we mean by sacrifice and how are we defining that term sacrifice? Right. And it really has to do with whether it's some of these more obscure, it's a uh, sacrifice of thanksgiving, or uh, it's the virtue of the sacrifice received to us and, and applied, Um or whether it's the the catholic view of the sacrifice sorry for hijacking that question no thank you i think you saved me a little bit there (laughs) (laughs) okay somebody i don't know if this is a question nope that's not a question okay i knew there was a good one down here okay question for eric what do you make of the reformation claim that melchizedek was himself a christophany do you think he was a christophany so you know when i when
1: I started to study about Melchizedek I had no idea how vast the speculations were um ancient interpretive interpret speculations um in the Jewish targums Jewish literature commentary um obviously the Qumran Qumran thinkers were trying to latch on to this uh, even the fathers the Syriac tradition has a, a you know has a certain uh understanding of who Melchizedek is. You know, there's 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 uh there's writers in the third and fourth century that that make it seem that Shem is Melchizedek. And I think um even modern scholars like uh even Catholic like Dr. Brian Petrie and Dr. John Bergsma uh believe that Melchizedek is Shem, Noah's son. Um my hesitations with that have always been that you know, Hebrew says he doesn't have beginning of days or beginning or end of days, but I I can see how they can try and fudge that. Not, not in an illegitimate sense, but fudge it to make room for it being Shem. I just don't see a lot of compelling persuasive force behind it. Um, Christophany, um, that's definitely, you know, there's, there's an angelic interpretation of Melchizedek. Some people have thought it was an angel. Um, So I just go with the way St. Cyril of Alexandria took it because Cyril of Alexandria and his commentary on Genesis talks about, even in his own day in the 420s, how many different interpretations of Melchizedek were on the market. And, And he just says, look, let's just stop where the Bible stops. And, you know, Cyril thinks there's Eucharistic entailments with the bread and wine of Melchizedek. So he, you know, you know, a strict Reformed theologian will say, "Well, Cyril, you're already going beyond the boundary." But I, I, I tend to go with Cyril's calm and collected hesitation to go beyond him,
0: just being this figure who typifies Christ. <laughs> okay, there's another one here by Giga Sniper. This is a particularly uh, this question hits home for me. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> what's the difference between Calvin's view of the Eucharist versus Aquinas's view? Yeah, you you should probably take that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, so with Calvin's view of the Eucharist, it's basically that there's a certain virtue which is infused in the uh, in the sacramental act into the bread and wine, and they themselves become instruments of the reception of of Christ in a mystical sense. So Calvin will describe it as our mouths ascending into heaven and taking a chomp off of the, the flesh of Christ. So they they themselves in the Eucharistic Act and only in the Eucharistic Act, because if you have bread, which is outside of the, the service, you can just throw it to the birds or whatever, because they don't become substantially uh, Christ's, Christ's body and blood, but in Thomas's view, there's a slight nuance. It's not a virtue or a uh, a power, as we would call it, but it's actually substantially Christ's body, blood, and then through something called concomitance, whereby um, whereby that substance it comes with it the the uh, body, blood, soul, and divinity of all is received in the substance of Christ in the Eucharist, in a substantial presence, not a local or a physical presence. So that's just kind of a very uh, 10,000 foot um, view of that matter. Um, I'm trying to think of anything I could recommend rather than just read read the Summa and um, learn about some metaphysics to be able to decode the very uh, particular language.
1: I know. I know that... uh... Uh, Dr. Lawrence Feingold has a book out with Emmaus Academic um it's just I think it's called The Eucharist now, he's a Catholic theologian so if somebody wants to get more information from the you know from Calvin himself get his institutes get his disputes get his commentaries but uh, I think Fangold does a good job as well, just
0: distinguishing the Protestant view. And Calvin wrote a, um, a little treatise uh, called the Treatise on the Lord's Supper, appropriately yep. named. And then also, if you want to get more into the generally reformed view of Eucharistic presence Vermigli he's amazing, amazing on it. Uh, if you go into Calvin's, I mean, um, Turretin's uh, Institutes of, uh, of Elanctic Theology, that's another good place to look. Beza, if memory serves me right. Um I, I think I remember reading a treatise from him, but it's also important to remember that Calvin's view isn't the only Reformation view. There's also Luther's and Darwell Stone has a really good section. Again, going back to Darwell Stone, he has a good section on different Reformation views of the Eucharist and he'll even categorize between different reform thinkers and different Lutheran thinkers. So that's a, a very complicated question. I don't think the question is actually what Calvin's view of the Eucharist is because there's such diversity within um within the uh reformed camp yeah. generally speaking and then also uh if you're really if you're really wanting to get a nice compendium um father gary lagrange his reality he has a few pages where he just goes over um transubstantiation and that's also a really helpful resource if um if you want a uh, a commenter on what thomas is saying Okay. Let's okay. So AJ is struggling with Eucharistic adoration. It seems to contradict the take and eat orders from our Lord.
1: Yeah. So this is something that I've struggled with in the past as well. Um, When I had, when I had issues with this, I went into the, I, I, I inquired into the history of adoration and I, you know, you could find some fathers talking about adoration, adoring Christ. You know, certainly St. Augustine talks about it. Um, but this issue of, you know, purposefully setting aside time and setting aside the body of Christ in the host um, to be just sort of like adored um, for a time or on unend- You know, no, it's never unending, but. For long periods of time, sometimes twenty-four hours, and um, throughout the week, it is a development and spiritual practice. It, I can't find it before the eleventh or twelfth century, um, and that's it, it, that. You know, it, the the whole idea of like the um, the exposition uh, of the body, and then you know, adoration for. You know, twenty four hours that comes later. So I I don't think we need to struggle with it though because it's very simple. I mean, we tend to make things a struggle when we complicate them unnecessarily. You know, the East looks at this also with a with a strange look, like what are you doing? Like what the purpose of it is to be eaten and consumed? Mm-hmm. You know, what are you doing? Um, but uh, you know. The, you know, there there's there does seem to be the fact that it is Christ in our midst. You know, it people recognize the presence, the special presence of Christ in the Mass, all the way going back to the Emmaus Road when they recognize Christ in the bread in the breaking of the bread. Um, so it signifies and it in it actualizes you know His presence in a special way, um, and I think that. I think that with that intimate closeness, it affords the soul the opportunity to just do exactly what you do during the ritual of the Eucharist just for longer, you know. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that there's a problem with it. Yes. Is it is is it is it I mean, is it head scratching? Can can it make one scratch their head? I'm not gonna, you know, I it's you know, it is a little bit of a head scratcher. Um, but substantially, is, can there be something wrong with that? I don't think so. You know, mm-hmm. Adoring Christ, I don't think there could be something wrong. Yeah, it comes
0: back to our principles of Eucharistic theology, because I think the wrong question to ask is the question of, okay, there's this whole sect- section of the church, the East, which doesn't really practice this as much, and then you have this whole time where they don't do it, so how can you justify it? But again, there can be certain uh, liturgical practices which are not necessary to be done, but can just flourish out of the church's contemplation of her theology. That we're looking at our theology, um, and especially in this, our Eucharistology, and uh, applying that. Okay, how can we most, uh, how can we apply this theology to our liturgy? And exposition and, and benediction makes the most sense when it comes to how are we truly recognizing that Christ is substantially present under the species of bread and wine. Hmm. Okay, so Giga Sniper, I just answered, uh, answered that. That was probably asked before I answered. Let's keep going down. Okay, what is the earliest patristic witness to transubstantiation? Saint Justin Martyr question mark.
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, very difficult one. It's a very difficult one. I I don't want to be, just like, oh yeah, you know, go to Saint Irenaeus and Saint Justin the Martyr. Um, although Saint Justin the Martyr does, I think he uses a a specific Greek word that's pretty powerful. Um, I you know I I I just don't like to give uncareful answers, but I could I can give you a book to look at. Um, if you get. Uh, Father Christian Caps and William Albright's book on the on it's called Transubstantiation or Unveiling the History of Transubstantiation, something like that, on Amazon. And boy, they just I've never seen something done um, with that much in, in, in such a concise manner, talking about the the language of the meta change. You know, there's a there's a, ch- a morph. Meta, and then there's, there's other Greek words, and then obviously in the Latin fathers they use different words um, to signify the change. I mean, you don't have to use the word transubstantiation, right? St. Saint, Saint Ambrose in, in The Mysteries says that Christ can change bread and wine into his flesh and blood just like he could change water into wine. Well, the kind of comparison that he's drawing is definitely transubstantiative, you know, um, but he doesn't use the word, I don't think. So get that book. And obviously, if you really want to just do something that you'll never regret is just get the book by Darwell Stone and uh, just hop to those sections on the uh, nature of the sacrifice in the Fathers and... Uh, You'll see an enormous amount of evidence.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, let's. And also, always remember development of doctrine. I want each and every one of you. You better be reading Saint Newman on this. <laughs> it's very important understanding how we justify uh, modern theological proposition propositions in the patristic witness. That's right. just my my radical Newmanism coming through. Okay, so barely Protestant. He's asking, would understanding the mass as the application of one sacrifice to the people of God before the Father be sufficient in understanding the sacrificial nature? And he's uh, in mind, he has apostolic a cure a, yeah. the bull and Anglican orders.
1: Yeah, yeah. So um, without being able to ping pong with the questioner, um, I, I would say it's not sufficient because the application um, can still be ongoing just with a post-sacrificial mode, you know, where you don't have a real propitiatory sacrifice involved. You could just sort of keep drawing the application out from what happened on Calvary, and, and you just keep drawing from that one event, and there is no significance of real sacrifice that happens afresh on the altar. So I don't think it goes far enough to be, you know, what the Catholic doctrine is saying, what the fathers are saying, certainly like St. John Chrysostom um, or St. Gregory of Nyssa. I think he's, he uses a specific word. Um, let me just flip to St. Gregory of Nyssa because the, the word he uses, I think, is just... Uh, It's rather awesome. He says that, this is what St. Gregory of Nyssa says, he says, but most reverend friend, cease not both to pray and to plead for me when you draw down the word by your word, meaning the prayer, when with a bloodless cutting you sever the body and blood of the Lord using your voice for the glaive. And the English word glaive, comes from the Latin gladius, which is, you know, means it it means sword. Um, That's, you can't get more fresh of a sacrifice than that. Um, So I don't think that just a perpetual application gets close enough.
0: Okay. So uh, people are wondering in the chat with Barely Protestant and Elijah what is your take on Anglican orders? And to give you some context to this, um, <laughs> I made some statements uh, positively about um, the possible validity of Anglican orders due to um, the infusion of, um, of Episcopal orders from the old Catholic Church into uh, Episcopalian Church of England bishops in the early to mid 20th century. So they're asking you about that. I don't even know if you've, you've given thought to it i don't think i've i haven't made far made much far with my argument, yeah, so I mean
1: I'm a huge fan of the old writer felix Serlot, the the late felix surlot um i think his book on apostolic succession is still the standard um he uh, he also has a book defending Anglican orders mm. um and he's no he's no he's he's no tool i mean it, it from a natural point of view, I could just I could just picture the argument working for Anglicans, but um, it comes down to what are we identifying? You know what what is the document? Uh, what is what is apostolic Curiae? What is it identifying? Is it just Anglicans unendingly? Anglicans in every future condition? Anglicans in of all times? And in all places and in all exceptional circumstances, be them greater or lesser, you know? I don't think so. I think he's got a rather strict identity in mind, and that is with regard to um the you know, obviously the 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 lack of the, the lack of a sacrificial nature in the culture or in the in the community of understanding in the Anglican church, at least for a time, that sort of rendered that branch of Anglicanism from reproducing the priesthood. But can it be that there are real bishops, real priests who get involved and sort of repopulate a validity um, side by side with that identity? I think so, I think that's possible. Um, and so now it becomes a much more complicated question that I don't think that um, I don't think the Pope's document really treats, you know, so that it's a tough question. You know, I, I, I obviously hold to the document, but I also know that it's limited.
0: Yeah, the, um, the USCCB had a wonderful report on this where they're saying there's a bit of a new context now yeah. from from various, various reasons. Yeah. Uh, Okay, so there's another question. Um, I don't think I'll be able to help adding to this at all, but um, if the Eucharist is a mystical reproduction of Christ's sacrifice, why doesn't it cover mortal sins as Christ's sacrifice on Calvary it did for the thief on the cross? So I know Christopher. He's a great
1: guy. Um, I'm Christopher. I'm having trouble with the question. Is it... Maybe if you could rephrase it in time for me to understand better, because what I'm reading here is that there's a there's a that there's you know the the question kind of takes as a given that Christ's sacrifice um, covers mortal sins, but the Eucharistic sacrifice doesn't cover mortal sins. In other words, maybe what you're asking is why do we have to be cleansed of mortal sin before we consume? The Eucharist, because mortal sin disbars it bars us from access, uh, but venial sin doesn't. I don't know. Maybe Christian, is there a better way to read the question? I'm not because I'm, I, I, Christopher and I talk um, all the time, so I I feel ashamed that I'm not I'm not understanding exactly
0: what he's asking. But I'm uh, I think let me let me share my screen real quick. Uh, I think there's a helpful distinction that's made right here. Okay, boom. So this is from Summa Theologiae, uh, Tertia Pars, Question Seventy Nine. So the power of the sacrament can, sacrament can be considered in two ways. First of all, in itself. And thus the sacrament has from Christ's passion, the power of forgiving all sins, since the passion is the fount and cause of the forgiveness of sins. Second, it can be considered in comparison with the recipient of the sacrament, insofar as there is or is not found in him an obstacle to receiving the fruit of the sacrament. So the reason that it doesn't have that effect of forgiving mortal sins is because there's a lack of um, what Thomas is going to call matter disposed to the receiving of form. So there's a lack of, quote, merit. So because there's these certain obstacles placed to the reception of the benefits of the Eucharistic sacrifice, that's why the application of the Passion of Christ isn't efficacious in this way.
1: Yeah, I think that, and I agree, I would say that.
0: Um, I you know, I hope that's exactly what he was getting at by the question. That's, that's what I think he was getting at. Um, but if not, then you all just got to... 60 second rant uh, yeah. <laughs> on the, on the Summa. Okay. So let me see if there's any other. Okay. So Elijah asks, how would you respond to us Orthodox saying that if you don't have a valid, a Bishop who holds the true faith and has legitimate uh, jurisdiction, then you have no valid Eucharist. So how would you respond to the Donatists? <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: so you know I, I I would go back to our sacramentology you know um, we we believe that and this is not something just Catholic I think that if uh, if you take the Council of Jerusalem of 1672 uh, I may have the a year wrong I think it's 1672 um, the Council of Jerusalem where where the Orthodox patriarchs, at least uh at least three of them or four of them um got together and uh ratified the confession of Dosithios. that doc that that whole treat that whole council and decree um is fantastic I, I recommend any orthodox to read it because if you read it um, it says that the priesthood is is an indelible mark just like baptism um, so, you know, the Catholic Church has believed, and, and this goes back to early disputes um, with the, you know, the pro the produrance of the status of a priest or the power to confect the Eucharist in schismatic bodies. Um, you know, we would just argue that the validity remains, you know, the validity and the power to confect the Eucharist remains in those who are not in communion with the Church, and it's it's a tragic crime to do so with full knowledge. This is one of the reasons why the you know the early fathers and you know uh, Aquinas would say that there's no grace to be received in those contexts, um, because he. He argues, if if I'm correct on on you know, this is what my recollections uh, gets me from Aquinas is he kind of takes it as a given that um, either most or all are receiving or schismatics lack charity, you know, and because of that pre because of that lack, um, they're not really properly disposed to receive the uh, the grace of the Eucharist. However, the continuation of the priesthood uh has to have a has to have a it has to have a uh, an effectual termination that gives it meaning because if we say well the priesthood is an indelible mark but after they break away from the body of christ um and and you know continue to offer the sacrifice in in you know schismatic services then it's not a real sacrifice anymore, and it's not Christ anymore, and it's not the real Eucharist anymore. Well, you know, it, it, it kind of, it, it, it does raise issues with what what is it that really destroys that power? And, you know, is it kind of private heretic? Does it does it happen with a private heretic in the true church? You know, if, if your valid bishop who's in communion with all the orthodox bishops of the world, if he's a private heretic or a private murderer, um, does that does that hinder the power to confect the Eucharist? No. Orthodox don't believe that. Catholics don't believe that. So then the question moves towards the public you know, the public severance. You now, well, does that break the power? And the Catholic Church has been, you know, adamant that the, even the even the church, you know, um recognizes that these the validity continues. Um and and so because of that there is no hindrance unless unless there is a super you know any there's ecclesiastical intervention. Um but even then I think canon law says that, for example, a priest may be ordered not to hear confessions, but if somebody's in di- dire need at the end of death, they can, even a even a schismatic, heretical priest who's outside the church, can hear can hear uh, someone's confession. So it it goes back to our sacramentology. It's you know I I don't think that the Orthodox um, are uh, you know they're not wrong to ask this question, but uh, this definitely has roots in the fathers. I don't have the statements at hand, um, but I think I do have an article on this. If you search, look up Saint Gregory the Great and the Nestorian schismatics, I think I wrote an article on this a while back. You know, the la- this view, the Catholic Church's view, has roots in the uh, pre-schism West, and so he. Just right there, off the bat, the pre-schism West—that those are Orthodox churches. You know, those—it's not; those aren't Roman Catholic churches, according to the Orthodox. So, I think the roots are there in the fathers, and it took time to elucidate this. You know, uh, with further, you know, theological uh, implication and I, I wish i had a book to recommend but i know uh, you know if you're not going to accept Aquinas' arguments and you're only going to accept patristic arguments i don't have anything off the top of my head to recommend on this but you know if you read Aquinas' summa i forget which parts but a christian if if you probably can put it in probably the show the notes later too. yeah if you could put the link or something in the show notes you could see where we're coming from aquinas does um he cites a couple of I think a few patristic passages. Uh, I'm not sure as to whether that's part of the spurious text that he got from Augustine or if it's, uh, you know, part of the uh, um, confirmed Augustinian works, but he he does make reference to the church fathers.
0: Okay. So he's, um, Basically, there's a little bit of back and forth in the chat, but What he's kind of wondering is, uh, he's making an analogy between the ability or the, uh, the power to consecrate the Eucharist and then the, uh, faculties of, uh, confession, which are given from the bishop to the priest. So when it comes to the minister of Eucharist, does it function in the same way in which faculties are needed to, uh, right. to say a valid mass I think it's very important a valid mass, right?
1: Yeah, I think the Orthodox compare it to like a spigot. You know, if the 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 you know the ordination rite is it gives an indelible mark, um, but if a priest is sort of you know excommunicated by his bishop, you know, obviously he's being dis- he's being banned from celebrating divine liturgy well, he's still a priest, but the spigot is turned off, you know, but he's still a priest, you know, he's still a water fountain or a water faucet, but his spigot has been shut off in order in in, in that way. Um, And, you know, I'm not prepared to give a good theological defense of the Catholic position on this. Um, But uh, that that therein lies the difference is that we, we do we do believe that bishop has the right to ban a priest from doing that you know that's why there are faculties you know allowing or disallowing this from happening uh, but when and where that doesn't exist you know the, the power to uh, hear confession you know is actually still of, afforded to to people on the case of and on the case of an extreme extremity like death, somebody who's on their deathbed, even an excommunicated priest in the Catholic Church in the Catholic understanding, understanding is allowed. Um, it's effectual. It's valid confession. You know, valid absolution. You know, the whole nine yards. Um, so, I mean, I'm probably not the best person to ask on this. That's
0: probably what I should say. I'm definitely not the best person to ask on this either. That this has not been uh east-west debates have not been anywhere near the scope of of my uh research. But that looks like that's all we have for you today question-wise. So is there anything you would like to any last words, not last words in that sense. Anything yeah. you would like to leave us with and then also uh plug anything that you got going on. You know, yeah, so you know, just um you know, check out the book. I,
1: I think that uh, even if it doesn't convince you, um, it'll at least be something you have under your belt. It's a short book to read. Um, I, uh, you know, I think I, I've mentioned this on air before, but I have a book coming out with Emmaus Academic, uh, specifically on the on the on the pa- on the papacy and the Orthodox, um, and that will uh, that will be quite hefty. It's kind of like a ten year project, so. Uh, look for that. I, the estimated publication time is Mayish ish June. Uh, it had been delayed before, um, as many things are being delayed and what's going on right now in the world. Um, but look for that. And then I also have a, a manuscript on the Filioque, on the procession of the Holy Spirit, which is about 400 pages, um, at least with the current font and page size. But... Depending on the editing, it could be smaller than that. My hope was to make it smaller. And that can be out um, probably within the next couple of months. So um, those are the things I would plug in for myself
0: right now. Okay, that sounds good. And uh, everybody else, um, remember uh, patreon.com slash militantomist. Um, you can get into that discord and, um, you can get some extra channels in there. Uh, that's very important just in case I happen to get nuked and, um, (laughs) disappear from everywhere, which is entirely possible. So I'm going to put that discord there real quick. And that's all I have for you guys today. Um, I think tomorrow I will have Dustin quick on, I will, um, have somebody else on uh, to talk about orthodoxy i can't remember exactly who and then i'll also it's it's a triple tomorrow i'll be uh swan sona's bringing me on his channel to talk about newman so look for all that and that's about all i have for you guys god bless and i will see you later thank you eric thank you for having me